WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware. Thank you, Jason. And joining me today is my good friend Alex Brown, whom I've known and drunk beers with since the late 1980s. (laughs) And Alex is a member of the faculty here at the University of Delaware and the Business Administration Department. Has taught marketing, retailing, online commerce, internet marketing, social media, all kinds of things. And he's one of those people that you, know, you and I go way back to the very beginning, don't we? You remember we wrote that thing together, demystifying the internet? Thank you very much for having me on the show and, and being able to talk about some of some of these old recollections. It, we, we, we tend to look a bit older than we did back then, but it was an interesting time. We were we just talking about the internet, and at the time, people thought it was a fad, and, and sort, of, sort of watching it develop to what it is today has just been an absolute fascinating journey, I think. Well, to me, I think it's remarkable if you go back to 1997, you were teaching one of the very first internet marketing classes anywhere, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. In fact, at the time, there were two of us teaching the same um, sort of course material um, anywhere in the world. And you could tell you knew that simply because um, it was quite easy to sort of navigate around, well, not easy to navigate around the internet per se, um, but you kind of knew what other people were up to at that time because it was still a very young developing um, medium, so it was kind of fun. How did you get started? I think this is a hilarious story. Well, I, I tell you, I was a, a, a grad assistant here when I was doing my, my MBA studies, and one one of the other grad assistants who was way smarter than me, I'd have to tell you, he was an operations management dude, and he would go to this room in Purnell, sort of down in the basement, sort of a geeky sort of venture or whatever and he'd sit in front of this what i thought was a dumb terminal yeah those old zenith z29 terminals i don't even know what they Green were screens but, but, but i thought that run was off limits to normal people let me tell you but he would come out and tell and and and, and tell me how his cricket team was doing and i was floored I, at that time you could go to a computer and learn how your cricket team was doing it was a real epiphany to me that there was something going on. And this was in the late 1980s, but I was fascinated by it. Maybe hard for some of our audience to believe, but back in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, the net was radically non-commercial, wasn't it? It was non-commercial, so there was a lot of tension when sort of some, some commercial enterprises sort of sought to what was perceived to be exploit this new medium. Um, it was also considered a fad by many people. Oh, this is cool, but it's going to go away. And um, I, I, I just had a sense, as did obviously a number of other people, but that clearly this was not a fad and this medium was going to develop. And it was just a very exciting time. And like you said, we ended up writing a paper demystifying the Internet um, with, with Sean Harville, um, who I'm sure is doing wonderful things now because he was always a, another smart dude. Um, and... And, you know, I, I, I think, you know, the first edition of that, um, that, that essay or whatever, you, that document we wrote, I don't even think we talked about the web. I think it was all about Usenet news groups, Gopher, and some other stuff that people listening out are like, what are they talking about? 
Oh, I think it, it's hilarious if you look back in history. I remember the University of California, Berkeley, and their library system decided to make the investment in Gopher because this WWW thing coming over from Switzerland, that was, that was just a flash in the pan. Yeah, I mean, who knew that flash in the pan? Invented by a, ver- <laughs> a very brilliant Englishman, I, w- I will have to say, as, as those that watch the Olympics opening ceremony will be remembered, um, as Tim Berners-Lee was one of, one of the guys focused. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 people made these judgment calls. It was kind of fun. But we know now the, the internet is so pervasive. And, and students today, they don't know what life is like without the internet. It's, it's fascinating to see how different they are to how we are we 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 the internet is still kind of a new thing for us i think and now we're playing catch up with these guys that have always sort of experienced it prior to 1991 people used these things called usenet news groups yes to yeah. communicate with each other and i think you started incorporating that into some of your marketing classes in about 1992 what what was the students reaction back then it was kind of cool because i you know i was teaching intro intro to marketing i was like who, who wants to take my class there's five other instructors <laughs> teaching this class they've taught it forever they're smarter than me mostly they have phds so why take alex brown's class so i was experimenting much to, thanks to your sort of guidance with, with Usenet News Group. So I applied one to my class, and it allowed outside-of-classroom discussion. And whilst it was a little bit sort of um, hard to navigate for students initially, that was one of the reasons why we wrote Demystifying the Internet, so they could sort of figure this stuff out. Once the students got it, they loved it. And they loved the fact that they were getting exposed to the Internet while still in college, and they could stick that on their resume, and, and it really was a differentiator at that point. So um, I think it made the class um, quite exciting. It's For those of you who were born after about 1980, well, maybe after about 1975, Usenet news groups were a very strange place. I mean, it, mm. it's... Every topic was subdivided. Yeah. Rec.music.country.guitar. And I can remember if you dared to mention that you had a guitar for sale on rec.music.country.guitar, you'd get flamed. Yes. No, no, that belongs in rec.music.guitar.forsale. Yes, I mean, <laughs> as, there, as there is appropriate internet behavior now, um, that's always been a piece of the internet culture. You really do have to be careful what you do because others will tell you very quickly and very abruptly when you do wrong. Um, and you have to have a bit of a thick skin, too, I suppose. I think one of the points you've already raised was that back in the early days, in the 1990s, there really was a lot of tension between the nonprofit and sharing right. origins of the Internet yeah. and for-profit marketing. I mean, yeah. what, what do you recall back, back from those days? I mean, some of those early experiences in the 1990s as people were trying to figure out, is this a cooperative venture or is this another place that we can sell things? Right. I mean, the thing is, the, the internet as we know today is, is, is worldwide. It's, you know, to, some, to a large extent free to, to, to do stuff on um, and so on and so forth. And clearly um, it, it became an opportunity for, for marketers to, to try to figure that stuff out. Um, in the context of the hacker culture of freedom of sharing um so so there was tension it that but if if you know 
note that y you had the same tension when radio was developing as a medium. I only know this now because I've become older and smarter and I have to look up this stuff <laughs> up. Um, so I thought that was a fascinating parallel, actually. The early radio, when, when sort of commercials started to develop to sort of sponsor shows and stuff, that was seen as, as a, you know, you can't use the public airways for commercial enterprise. Very similar to the internet, different also. And I do remember the first spamming sort of thing. I think it was Cantor and something law firm. They figured it out. And, you know, you can send a, a copy of something and 10,000 copies at the same cost. And they figured that out pretty quickly. And, and I think, um, you know, we do that a lot today. But it, back, back in the day, that was seen as a bit of a problem. Oh, not just a bit of a problem. I mean, people went ballistic for yeah. weeks in, yeah. in the Usenet news groups. Yes. I mean, debating this yeah. and, you know, should this person be executed? Yes. <laughs> uh, I don't think they were, but <laughs> it was quite funny. Yeah. Uh, now, you started teaching Internet marketing. As we yes. already said, you were one of the first two in the entire known universe yeah. to have been teaching yeah. that. Started that in 1997. What kinds of things did you first start incorporating into that I mean, class? Basically, the, the, the backstory behind that was I was still teaching intro to marketing. I went to the, and, and using U, Usenet news groups and stuff, um, I went to the, the faculty or, the, or who, whoever makes decisions, and I said, could I teach as an elective internet marketing? And the pushback, well, there wasn't any pushback within the college, but the general sense was this is a fad. It'll go for maybe a semester or two, but then it'll go away. Um, but... Um, my my idea behind the course was just basically take the same material you you kind of teach in intro to marketing, but apply the web to it, um, and and it worked out quite well. And um, one of my goals was to teach students HTML. I wanted them after the end of that semester the actual language to, that to the people used the actual, to make the web pages. the actual language, and they could actually create a website. They had to create a website um, for a business and so on and so forth. And the students loved that. It was a bit of a challenge at first, but as we know, it's actually quite straightforward to teach HTML. It's not like real computer coding, where smart people and, and geeks and, 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 and nerds and whatever, all the other politically incorrect terms or whatever. I mean, I aspire to be a geek, so I can say that. But, um, you know, you learn C, C++ or whatever, you're labeled smart. But you can learn HTML just by looking at the source code, and that's how I would teach them look at stuff, look at how, how the code works, and then use it. In the late 1990s, I can remember you know, when search engines were in their infancy, and even the early 2000s, my phone would ring and be Alex saying, Richard, you've got to type this in and, and see how, how my guys have managed to get it to yeah. pop up the listings. Oh, yeah, and we did some search engine optimization experiments and, and stuff, and you could do that then, and it was kind of fun. Um, but, you know, the key was always to experiment with stuff like that. You're going to make some mistakes along the way, but if you're not prepared to experiment with your curriculum or whatever, you're not going to develop and improve it, right? So I'm sure there's some of the stuff that I would do that was completely um, stupid at the end of the day, but it's experiment, <laughs> figure it out, and keep going forward. I think the students probably really grooved on that enthusiasm that you had and the, f the fact that you were teaching something new. And, yeah, I was enthusiastic about it, and... And you still are, for heaven's sake. And I, I still am. But and I'll tell you, the Internet's been a huge deal for me because prior to the Internet, I was no good at anything. And I won't say that I'm particularly smart at the Internet, but it gave me something 
again, back at the late 1980s, early 90s, I could get my head around at a time when a lot of people weren't sort of focusing on it. So I was kind of half a step ahead of people. That's kind of my attitude the whole time. If you can stay half a step ahead, um, then people think you, you're a little bit smarter than you are. We're talking with Alex Brown from the university's Department of Business Administration. And while I'm talking, I hope Alex will move his microphone more in front of his face um, so that we can turn the level down a little bit. Remember, this is live radio, so you're hearing Alex warts and all here. It's it's fascinating to me. I mean, you've had such an interesting career with the Internet side. And we'll get into the other side of your career in a little bit. But really, let's just talk for a little bit about what's different from, say, 1997, the first time you taught Internet marketing and and now. I mean, you're teaching a, a similar class this semester. What's really changed in the past 15 years? Well, I'll, f- I'll focus on two things. Certainly, in 1997, I felt that I knew more than the students and I could teach them based on that premise and I think that's the premise you tend to teach whatever subject matter you teach as the professor you should know more than the students and you should be able to educate them so I was able to do that and I thought that was kind of cool certainly in two what are we 2012 I I, I can't even remember where we're at now um, but I don't think you can in for this particular subject matter you can make that assumption anymore um, these students, like like we mentioned, they've only known the internet. They know social media. Um, they're doing things that you're just starting to learn about. Now, I think from a theoretical standpoint, I should be one step ahead of the students. But from a, an application standpoint and using some of this stuff, some of the students are doing stuff I, I've never done. Um, so from a teaching standpoint, you try to sort of perhaps look engage collectively on how we can all learn um, and certainly the second half of my course will be geared more toward that as we discuss social media tools like Pinterest and Instagram and stuff I've never used them I still can't figure them out but they're growing phenomenally and some of the students do understand them and we're going to all learn together why um, sites like Pinterest have really um, re- really taken off oh you're selling yourself short you've been using social media and working it into your professional life for a long time now. Sure, sure, but not Pinterest. (laughs) (laughs) And it just freaks me out that I don't really know absolutely why this is such a fascinating site. And the same with Instagram. Now, TwitPic, I'm always TwitPicking, but (laughs) apparently I should be doing it through Instagram and putting some kind of groovy filters on this stuff, and, and I don't get that. Um, but nevertheless, and, and the other big change, I think, is less about sort of teaching this stuff, but the structure of the web. You know, the web at the beginning was a bunch of websites. It was very cool, all interconnected in the hypertext, loved it. I now see the web in, in sort of three different domains. You've got that kind of web format, lots of different websites, all interconnected, business websites, sports websites, and so on and so forth. Very cool. You've got the social web, which is quite different. And you've got Wikipedia, which again, I think is quite different. And I think those are are the three sort of main sort of tenets of what the web is today. What it's evolved into. Yes. I mean, back in the day, Gopher was very hierarchical. I was trying to explain it to one of my students this week, you know. It was it's very hierarchical. This file leads to that file, leads to that yes. file. I mean, it's like sort of a directory structure, whereas the web is associative. Yeah. 
yeah and and remember back in the day we created a gopher um site for the yep. university of delaware's mba program and when we put it out there we were innovative we were on the cutting edge it was pretty cool yeah <laughs> i was so excited <laughs> Well, before we go on to your other passion, we're speaking with Alex Brown from Business Administration. Let's talk a little bit about Wikipedia, because I think you and I might yeah. take the gloves off on this one a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, you now are starting to send your students out to Wikipedia to find anything out. It's essentially becoming my class textbook, which I'm sure, I, I hate to say that maybe the university bookstore get mad at me, especially since I'm also trying to sell a book through the university bookstore. <laughs> so, so I have a bit of a conflict of interest there, which is a bit of a problem. But I mean, Wikipedia is it, it's an amazing resource, I think. I, I was actually looking on archive.org um, last night um, to see how it looked in its first version. And their goal in their first version in 2000 or 2001 was to have 100,000 articles. Let's become an encyclopedia. That was their statement. We currently have X amount of articles. We want 100,000. Well, now they have 4.1 maybe million articles in the English language and it's one of those sites that every day just gets better tighter stronger it's, it, it sort of exp experiences increasing returns so I think where faculty maybe two to three years ago were hesitant in sending students there certainly don't cite it and um, when you're doing research I think you know those faculty some of them maybe take another look now um, it's developed and it's it's grown and certainly for my subject matter I think it, it clearly makes a lot of sense to use Wikipedia. I mean, I tend to counsel students to use it as a starting place. Yes. I mean, it still bothers me that it's there's no accountability. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily fit into the chain of research where where Alex's research built on Howie's research, which built on right. so and so's research. Yeah. I mean, you don't get that sense from Wikipedia. But to me, it's just this wonderful starting place. And the other thing that's cool is, and you've probably done this in some of the places you've worked too, is people are starting to build internal wikis and finding yep. it a really wonderful way to manage information within a group. Right. I mean, I have a wiki for my own project. I love, love, love the concept. Um, but going back to the Wikipedia, and we could talk about WikiLeaks too, if you like, because we would talk about that in my class um, yesterday, but going back to Wikipedia, um, yeah, you know, it's it's probably shouldn't be cited as, as a resource, but m a lot of the content now in Wikipedia now is cited. So you can then click on that citation, go down and go to the original source of where right. that um, content came from. So, I mean, I think Wikipedia is, is, is a, a, a real um, um, positive aspect of the Internet at this point of the web. Rather than going on and talking about WikiLeaks, is it okay if we switch gears and talk about sure. your other passion? Oh, yeah. When Alex arrived at the studio, he was all sweaty and uh, wearing scruffy clothes as he has just gotten done. Riding. Dude, I got changed. <laughs> you got changed? I got changed. <laughs> <laughs> he was out uh, with his other job as an exercise rider this morning, and you rode, You told me two horses this yes. morning, took yes. them out for the gallop, and... And Alex really has a passion for not just the Internet and teaching and connecting with the students here, but also with um, horse racing and the ethical treatment of animals. Um, you literally wrote the book about Barbro, didn't you? Right. Yes. Yes. I mean, Barbro, he's, he's a local 
horse. I mean, unfortunately, 2012 less people now uh, uh, remember that that episode. But he was the undefeated winner of the Kentucky Derby. Um, trained at Fair Hill, where I just came from, and where I shall return after this um, interview to get on some more horses. So I'm kind of thing. And um, and you know, I I was tangentially, I would say, tangentially involved in that story, and ultimately ended up writing a book um, about Barbaro. Um, but also sort of along the way, the book is just, I would sort of consider one of the media that I used to manage um, a huge online community of people that first began to to come to the site to simply get Barbaro updates that then sort of evolved into a, a, quite a large impact in the horse welfare space. Seth Godin would call us a tribe, if, if you're familiar with um, some of the business books he churns out about um, twice a month. Well, I think it's, it's fascinating. You were doing a website for Tim Woolley, yes. right? The yeah. trainer out at Fair Hill. And then his website became this place that media all across the world were coming yeah. to for updates. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and the reason for that ultimately was because of all the work I was doing here um, and what I'd learned from here in terms of the internet and connecting it all together and being able to sort of, um, this was almost like a live experiment, a live case study. Does all this stuff truly work? You know, and it started off with Google ads, Google AdWords to sort of drive people to the site based off the right keywords and so on and so forth. And we went from a site that had three visits a day um, to a site that at one point was steady state about 15,000 visits a day. 15,000 a day. Steady state. Uh, wow. Uh, for about, you know, a month uh, uh, during that time. And it peaked at about 70,000 visits in, 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 in one of the days. So it was, it was an interesting um, experience. And ultimately, then I, I wrote about it. Yeah. If you're interested in the book, I'll uh, just tell you that out at the show's website, www.udall.edu slash campusvoices, if you click on the webpage for Alex's um, interview here, You'll see down below a link to his website, and you can find more information about the book. And it really is lovely. I mean, it, it's got photo essays. It's got the poignant story, but then also ties in with the message. Right, you know. right. And and it was an interesting—I mean, if, if you told my English teachers back in the day that I was going to write a book, I'd be like last in, in, in their sort of thing, oh, yeah, Alex will write a book. I mean, I was useless. I, I was such a, I would Honestly, I was a poor student <laughs> until the Internet came along, and I actually got inspired to, to, to step up to the plate a little bit. Um, but, you know, I brought the same passion and energy that I think that I bring to some of the other projects I get interested in to execute on designing and putting together this book. Now, I wasn't the designer, but I'd work very closely with the designer, and a lot of my sort of insight in terms of how to design this book came from web design usability, design usability, Jakob Nielsen, all the stuff that he would write about. I mean, so it was almost like a fresh approach of how this book should be put together. Um, but I was a geek about it. I mean, I loved it. I think that to me, as you would stop by my office or call me from wherever you were uh, talking about it, asking questions about, about different aspects of it. To me, I thought it was remarkable because you were putting in practice some of the things that you had been teaching in Internet marketing and that you now are teaching. Exactly, exactly. And and hopefully putting them to good use. I mean, my passion horse is my passion Internet. I mean, who knew I was actually going to get a project that would sort of marry the two together? And, um, 
and sort of sent me off on a completely different journey. I mean, I basically took four or five years out of my career to pursue what became quite a, a large sort of project for me. And it, it took me sort of on road trips all up and down North America, galloping at racetracks up all up and down North America and doing lots of other um, really interesting things. And I think you can only really do this stuff when you find that passion. And, and you know, I... Yeah, I'll never be rich. The book will never make money. But I'm rich because I have a passion and I'm able to pursue it. And I think if if you can get to that state in your life, that's a pretty good thing. We've got just a couple of minutes left. As we close down, why don't we have you talk a little bit about your experience managing this online community, this online anti-slaughter right. um, community, which, I mean, it's got tens of thousands of members. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been very interesting. I, I spent a couple of days in class um, talking talking about it to the students, and I'm sure the students thought they signed up for a class that where I just talk about myself. So hopefully they realize that's not entirely true, and we'll talk about some other stuff later. Um, but, you know, Managing an online community, I've done it twice actually. At the Wharton School, I did it um, for managing s- students applying to the the school, and that was kind of interesting and straightforward. And I thought I knew everything after doing that. Let me tell you, managing an animal welfare community, not so much. <laughs> and all the fiefdoms and the infighting and this, that, and the other is incredible. And really, you have to learn a lot about game theory and various other things to be an effective online. Um, community manager and I would show some of the students some of the emails I would be forwarded about what people thought of me from quote unquote other animal welfare people and you know these emails are awful but if you don't have a thick skin you got to go do something else Um, but I would say some of them and I was actually one of my um, ideas for writing the book was actually to have a whole chapter on how ridiculous this stuff is but then I thought well a few people would find that very interesting, but it probably wouldn't get wide commercial appeal. Well, let's let's try and close on a positive note. I think you really have made a difference in in how older and um, retiring racehorses ha- are treated now. I mean, I, I've been fortunate to be put in a position where I can make s- a small difference. I think, again, one of the th- things that I talk about in the book is, you know, we can't single-handedly change the world but by your actions you can make a little bit of a difference and and we use the starfish parable to sort of explain it and there's a there's there's basically you're not going to change the world but for for the individual horse you're you're working with you're going to change its world alex and i could talk for another hour but it's almost time for the ap network news thanks so much for coming in alex thank you very much for having me Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website, Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, 
or online at wvud.org. Thank you.